0: Um, if you missed it last week, here's where uh, we were. Ariel, if you could put up that slide. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This sermon series has kind of pushed some of us to, to, to points of discomfort, and that's actually a good thing, because last week, we said, here's a picture of the church as God envisioned it, right? He says, you are living stones. Sven, are you here today? Sven, or Mr. Handyman came over to my house and helped me cut some bricks. He says you are individual living stones and you are being built into a spiritual house and the word spiritual house literally is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the author had in mind the temple in Jerusalem where the spirit of God the Shekinah glory of God dwelled. And literally, what he is saying is that it is to the extent that you and I, as individual stones, are built into, are interwoven, are interconnected, it is to that degree that the power of the Spirit comes in you. And the question that I asked last week is this, here is the normal Christian life and that is you and I are individual building blocks and we are created and designed in such a way that we are fitted in. We are built into each other does does this does this look like you, me, our our church you realize that we live in a culture in which it is perfectly acceptable that people come on Sunday worship event sing some songs, listen to sermon go home and do their private individual Christian life and everybody just goes well that's cool The question that we are challenged with, and this is New Testament Christianity, are we so built into the lives of each other that should you stop showing up, should you be removed from this, that the whole thing would collapse? Are we so interwoven and built into each other that should you stop coming? Because you are so integrated. You are so interconnected. You are so interwoven into the lives of others here that should you stop This, This is Christianity. And I said last week, some of y'all like, no, that's not me. I'm, I, we don't have a table today. I don't know. You're over here doing your own thing, you know, and you're some of y'all over here doing your own thing, and you're going, you know, I'm not really a part of that, and that's okay because me and my Jesus and the Bible's going, that's not Christianity. You have to figure something. You're inventing your own thing, then. This is just so foreign to the way that we view. The church and Christianity, let me, let me just say something before I move on. As I was thinking and praying about this this week, I felt compelled to say the following. If there's anybody sitting here today that looks at this and says, I was one of those. But Peter, I was hurt by the church. I was one of those. and I was hurt by the church. I wanna say I'm sorry. I wanna say I'm sorry. And it's hard for me to say as a pastor because even as I've been preaching on this, I fully recognize that there are those of you you're not the you're not part of that group that just says, Well, I just wanna be by myself. I don't need anybody. Actually, Maybe it's church or Christians that pushed you and said, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And you're sitting here today. I just want to say I'm sorry that you've been hurt by the church. We're imperfect, sinful people. And we're going to make mistakes. And I'm sorry. Sorry. That's been hurt by the church. Can you ask? As we've been continuing to talk about this, and I said this last week, I don't want anybody here to leave. But if you decide, Peter, that. I don't want to do that at this church, then my prayer for you has been, I pray that you would find a church community where you can find that and do that. Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't church shop, don't skip and hop, don't just randomly go and come as you go. Whatever you do, find a community in which this is what your life looks like. is what God intended. It's what God designed this whole thing to be. Today, as we continue to push, by the way, I just want to, you know, we've got a little bit of time. I don't want to spend too much time. We've been talking about this for like six weeks. What are you thinking? For those of you that have been here regularly, you know, what are you thinking? How is this hitting, resonating with you? That's not a rhetorical question. I I want you to say something. Anybody? Convicting? Yeah, I'm with you, Tim. That's why I've been screaming so much for the last six weeks. <laughs> I preach really loud when I'm preaching to myself. And today, I'm going to be screaming at the top of my lungs, FYI. Anybody else? (sighs) Did you guys hear that? Say it again, Tom. Say it again. Say it again for like 50% of the people here doing nothing. Sorry. Say it again. Say it again. Okay. Anybody else? Misty. A couple more people and then we need to move on. Come on, how many... Who are you? <laughs> Who, is this you? Are you over here on your own? Nobody knows you. You're not known to sit, come, and go as you wish. You're not part of a group of people you do life with. Is this, you're not serving and integrated and making a difference. Is this you? I, I, I'm hoping and praying for you that... Today, um, we... So let me just give you layout. Today we're talking about actually digging even deeper. We're talking about life-giving spiritual friendship. So it's not just seven, eight people that I'm kind of doing life with. We're pressing even deeper. And then next week we're talking about <laughs> next week we're talking about relationship repair. That is, how do we forgive people who've hurt us? And how do we reconcile? Because if you press in, it's inevitable. You're going to hurt people. And people are going to hurt you. How do we reconcile, forgive? That's what we're going. And then two weeks from then, we're going to talk about what does it mean for us to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, socioeconomic body that reflects the kingdom and the difficulties and challenges. All of that stuff. So that's where we're going. But today, we're talking about spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship. Confession. My wife regularly reminds me peter how come you have no friends and it will come randomly we will be having an amazing dinner and out of nowhere my wife will go how come how come you don't have any friends She'll come back from an amazing time with her wonderful friends, and she'll say, Peter, how come you don't have any friends? Now, she's not saying it to be mean. She's not saying it to be sarcastic. My wife, actually, in a very loving way, is forcing me to ask a deep question. That is, I have lots of acquaintances. I have lots of companions. I have lots of associates. I have lots of people that I do life with. But when I press in and ask the question, how many, what I'm talking about today, how many friends do I have? I have to agree with my wife. I don't have that many. And let me tell you another thing. I struggle in this area. And I know you do too. I have regular conversations with men and women when I ask that question. How many friends do you have? Not fake Facebook friends. How many friends do you have? And the answer always is, I don't have that many. Some of you go, well, what about marriage? Marriage, my spouse. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You know what makes a great marriage? It's the friendship in the marriage. I'm going to tell you right now, when you go through hard times, when you go through difficult times, it's not the romantic, erotic, eh, the marriage, it's the friendship in the marriage that will carry you through the difficult times. Ask any healthy married person, healthily, is that a word any healthy marriage, and they will tell you. Do you have friends? Do I have friends? Three questions, three answers, then we're done. Question number one, why is it neglected? Why is friendship and the kind of friendship we're talking about neglected? I'll tell you why. And this is totally from C.S. Lewis and his book, Four Loves. It's the least natural of our relationships. What do I mean? Powerful argument that you have many relationships in our culture today. That's sort of forced on you, whether biological or sociological. What do I mean? They're biological relationships and needs and drives that are forced on you. We talk about sexual chemistry, chemistry. We talk about I'm really attracted to that person. We talk about how there's this thing in us that just kind of compels us in this area of romance, of relationships. It doesn't, you don't need to try really hard. You think it sort of happens. And I look at our culture. Look at the culture that we live in, this individualistic Western culture, and how much we are prone to just kind of go romantic relationships. Walk through the grocery aisle magazine rack, and on the glossy front pages, you don't have titles. Who is best friends with who? Why? Nobody cares. But who is sleeping with who? Now that we want to know. Songs. Quick. Tell me the top ten songs about friendship that's been on the billboard charts in the last 40 years. Go. Okay. Well, some of you smart Alex will be like, da, 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 da. Let me just. How many songs about love? Yeah, well, we don't. If you have, don't do this on your phone. I googled friendship and it was like 200 million. I'm like, whoa. Then Google love or romantic love. It's like 4 billion. It's movies. Think of an amazing movie that was made about friendship. Jeez, oh, a bunch of smart Alex in our church. What the? okay i'll play along with you okay i'll play along with you all right the most profound movie recently that was made on friendship is lord of the rings right but if any of you have actually read the book J.R. tolkien put in the heart of it friendship not the romantic stuff but what happened to the movie What do we have to do? What does Hollywood have to do? People might not be interested in the core essence of what Tolkien was about, so you have to stick in it a romantic relationship. Songs, movies, entertainment. We live in a culture in which friendship is sort of at the back burner, and the thing that just sort of drives us romance. Okay, sociological. What do I mean by that? Some of us come from traditional cultures, where the primary relationship is family. Family. Mom, dad, brother, sister. Some of you will go home today, and you'll call your mom. Why? You don't want to call your mom, but you'll call your mom. Why? Because if you don't, stuff happens to you, like bad stuff. (laughs) I'm not making this up. People tell me this stuff. I I don't like my parents, but I have to call them. Why do you have to call them? Because we're driven. C.S. Lewis says, do you realize that friendship is the least important because there's no drive behind it? Do you know what that means? That means in an incredibly busy culture like ours, listen carefully, it goes in the back burner. All the relationships that you and I prioritize when we don't have time, when we don't have energy, we're drained. All the relationships that we prioritize are relationships that are just forced on you. Romance, you'll make time for that. I don't care how tired you are. Parents, but in a culture like ours, friendship that takes intentionality, that takes effort, that doesn't have a biological or sociological drive, you just kind of go, nah. And yes, we live in the most mobile culture probably in history of the world. For fun, I, t- I googled how many singles in Chicago. <laughs> By the way, did you know like two years ago, for the first time in American history, there are more singles now than married people in this country. There are some 215 million singles. Something close to that. We live and breathe in a city where there are singles all over the place. And they're far away from their families. And yet, you are not prioritizing the kind of friendship we're talking about. You will make time for romance, date. You will make time for fun. But this, why is it neglected? It's the least natural. Why is it important? We go back to the foundation, right? Genesis 2.18. And we began with this, and we've continually come back to this. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I will make help suitable for him. Realize that up to now. We talked about this, everything. Realize up to now in Genesis, the creation of all things. Everything that God makes, he declares, it's good, it's good, it's good. And suddenly we come to Genesis 2.18, and God says, it's not good. In paradise, in perfection, where man has everything just the way he wants it, you find something wrong. He's unhappy because he's alone. And I, and I press you guys on thing. Think about the ramifications of the Bible saying that he was unhappy. Think of the garden. You think you have good food? Nothing compared to what he had in the garden. He has comfort. He has beauty. He has pleasure. He also had the terrific prayer life. He walked with God for crying out loud. And yet, He's still unhappy because he's alone. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons on envy, said that the only possible reason that the first human being was lonely in the Garden of Eden, the only reason that paradise wasn't enough for him is that, think about the radical implication of this. God makes human beings to need others beside himself. This is going to, for some of us, He goes on and says, God must be the least possessive, the least envious of all beings. Because he intentionally created you and me to need others beside himself. About a year and a half, two years ago, I I started studying Book of Ecclesiastes because I thought I was going to preach on it this last fall. And I came to this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There's a man all alone. He had neither son nor daughter. The word brother, son nor brother. The word brother there literally means a friend. There's no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Let me tell you what's going on here. Here's a man who put personal achievement, success, before relationships. He's made partner, but he has no friends. And he's miserable. Let me press in for many of you young professionals of our church. This guy finds to his absolute horror that when you get to the end of your life, even if you have success, achievement, you may partner, making a lot of money, he literally says, all of that is totally mean. How much more clearly can the Bible say when it says paradise wasn't enough for Adam? How much more clearly can the Bible say, you think if you have homes, you think if you have money, you think if you have success, you think if you have achievement, you think if you have all the things that the world says, you need it, you need it, you need it. You think that if you have all of that, that you'll finally go, ah, he says, all of that, and you get to the end of your life, you have no friends, it's meaningless. Utterly meaningless. How much more clearly can the Bible say? How much more clearly can the Bible say? Do you realize this is part of God's design for you? On the other hand, just want to say, there's comfort for some of us. Maybe there's some of us in here who've been kind of falsely taught to feel less spiritual because we feel like we can't do life on our own. We can't do life, we need people. Now, let me be clear. Yes, there's a dysfunctional, emotionally unhealthy sort of codependent I need people type of thing. But Apart from that, let me just be very clear. If you are sitting here today and you go, I can't do life on my own. I need other people in my life. I need community or this Christian life. I can't live. I can't, I can't handle the difficulties in my life. I can't do all this on my own. I need people. Do you know why you say that? Because you're like God. Because God designed you that way. As I've said, it's not a sign of spiritual immaturity to say, I need friendship and community. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. And for put another way, needing community. It's not a sign of imperfection. It's a sign of perfection. God designed you that way. Third question then, how do you make friends? I felt kind of silly. <laughs> I thought about it. I'm like, how do you make friends? And then I realized, Peter, you stink at it. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the characteristic attributes of what makes a great friendship. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say, oh, well, up front. This, some, for some of us, is an evaluative guide. What do I mean? I'm going to, application, I was going to get there at the end. Some of you are going to have to, after today, go home and go, I've got a lot of acquaintances. They're not really friends. What I'm going to need to do is I'm going to have to make some tough phone calls, have tough conversations with some people and say, listen, I need you to be these kinds of friends. Will you covenant with me to do this together? Because evaluate your friendships. Evaluate the community around you. You're going to realize, like, there are a lot of companions, a lot of acquaintances, but they're not friends. What are the marks or building blocks of friendship? Let's, let's look at them real quick. Let's look at them real quick. One, friend is someone who is always there for you. A friend is someone who is always there for you. Now, I'm going to unpack these main points because you can't really tell from the sermon point. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a contrast. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Will you first notice? This is important. That the contrast between not two equal groups of people. Look at it companions, acquaintances, and associates. So you could have many of those, but there is one friend. Real quick, what I'm going to talk about today, you can't have too many. Why? As you'll see, it takes tremendous emotional investment. The kind of friends that the scripture talks about that we need, you can't have, you're not going to have 10 of them. Because of the emotional investment it takes keep going. A band of many companions may come to an, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Underline, focus on the word sticks, and that word sticks like a brother, closer than a brother, that's a Hebrew word that's often translated in the Old Testament, cleave. It means commitment out of love. Another biblical word, a covenant. We're talking about a covenantal relationship when you're talking about this kind of friendship. And this friend is someone who's so committed to you and to the friendship They've covenanted to it such a way that they will not let you go to ruin. Newsflash. Most of the friends you know and most of the friends that I know, we know them because they're useful to us. Did that offend anybody? And before you get all worked up, you need to realize that most of the people you and I know and we actually are in relationship with is because they're useful to us as well useful to having a good time, useful to getting networked, useful to moving up the career, moving up into certain social circles. Many of the friends that we have, companions, acquaintances, we know them because they're useful to us. And it's not to be mean, but because they're useful to us. Now, why do we do that? Because the vast majority of our relationships are consumeristic, not covenantal. Here's what I mean by consumeristic relationships. Consumeristic relationships, which we are brainwashed by our culture. Once you walk out today, church, and you're sitting in a restaurant, you're watching TV, we are bombarded with a consumeristic culture. And here's what a consumeristic relationship is. Consumeristic relationship says, I have a relationship with a vendor, and that person provides certain needs for me. And as long as that vendor continues to provide the needs that I need, we stay in relationship. But here's the thing about a consumer relationship. You're always looking for an upgrade. You're always looking for something better. That phone carrier charges a little less. I'm going to go with Verizon. I'm not going to go with AT&T. We have a consumer relationship where the vendor provides for all of our needs. And the fundamental to consumer relationship is this. Listen, it's you adjust to me. As long as you keep adjusting to me, we're good. But the moment you stop adjusting to me, I'm out of here. What's a covenantal relationship? And by the way, Think about your marriages and your friendships. What's a covenantal relationship? Covenantal relationship is the exact opposite of a consumer relationship. Covenantal relationship comes and says, you don't adjust to me, but what? I adjust to you. My needs, covenantal relationship, my needs are not the most important thing here. My needs are not the most important thing here. The most important thing is the relationship itself. My personal needs take a backseat to this relationship. The sustenance of this relationship is more important than my personal needs. How do you know if you have a user relationship and not a covenantal relationship? Whether it be a marriage or friendship, here it is. A user relationship. When you start struggling, when you start falling down, when life starts blowing up in you, when you start falling apart and you're tempted to go to ruin, a user relationship is one in which someone says, I don't want to invest that much emotional energy. I don't want to invest that much emotional capital to actually be there for you. So here's what I'm going to do. Hey, you're struggling. Call me if you need me. You might think it's good intention when you go to somebody, hey, call me, let me know. A covenantal relationship is one in which, check this out, you already know what their needs are because you've let them in. And you don't say, call me when you need me. You go, I am here for you and I will not let you go to ruin and I don't care what it costs me emotionally, mentally, and other ways. I will not let you go to ruin. I'm committed to you. As I've been preaching this sermon series, here's what I've noticed. There's never been A generation that's more starved for meaningful relationships. Would you say that you want this? Would you say that? But you realize how much of a consumer mentality and individualist Western culture has brainwashed you. Do you know what your attitude is? Your attitude is, I want to be loved. But I want to be totally independent. You're saying, I want to be loved. Somebody love me. But you're also saying at the same time, I want to be totally independent. What is that? That's the basis of a user relationship. What do I mean? Do you really, really want to be in meaningful relationships? Do you know what you have to do? In a meaningful relationship, you have to say to the person, I'm not going to come and go when I please. I'm not going to ha- you know, be here if I have time. I'm not going to be here if I feel like it. In a covenant relationship, you go, you know what? I'm not going to come and go as I please. I'm going to make time for this, and I am here for you whether I feel like it or not. And you know what that does? That allows you to be truly you. When somebody says, I'm not going anywhere, Peter. I will make time for this relationship. You know what? You could be all of you, fully you in front of me, and I am committed to this relationship. You know what that does to me? That says to me that I'm going to be totally me, all of me. And that builds trust. Build trust. Try building trust in a relationship where you go, are you going to be here? Maybe, maybe not. Are you going to make time for this? Maybe, maybe not. Are you going to be here when you don't feel? That's why we all relate to each other as consumers. We have to pretend we have to put our best foot forward. We have to, we have to spin our image. We have to put on masks. Why? Because we go, as soon as you see something you don't like, as soon as this is no longer fulfilling for you, you're out of here. And we continue to be starved, hungry for relationships. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I, think about your relationships even with your Christian brothers and your, your church community. Are we relating to each other from a covenantal perspective and saying, I am committed to you. I am not going to go up and go as I wish. I am going to make time for this. I am here whether I feel like it or not. Or are we saying, I'm going to come and go as I wish. If I have time, I'll make time for it. If I feel like it, I'm here. No wonder we're walking around pretending, having to wear masks. Isn't it exhausting to pretend all the time? Anybody? Isn't it exhausting to pretend to be someone you're not? How are you going to get over that to go deep? It can only happen in the context of two people who said, I am committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here. I will make time. A true friend someone who's always there for you. Secondly, a true friend is someone who's emotionally invested in you. Oof. Proverbs twenty six eighteen, like a maniac. <laughs> By the way, one of the things about proverbs <laughs> is the word picture is so funny. You ever read the book of Proverbs? It's a, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death. <laughs> is one who deceives their neighbor and says, "I was just kidding." Why does someone deceive his neighbor and go, "I was just kidding"? Because he has absolutely no clue to the inner emotional state of his neighbor. He has no clue. He's totally emotionally disconnected. Here's another one, Proverbs 25, 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day. Again, what a beautiful imagery, right? Or like a vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You know what "sings songs to a heavy heart means? The word songs literally means a song of joy. This is a friend who's singing songs of joy in front of a friend who's grieving. Who sings songs in front of a friend who's grieving? I'll tell you, it's a friend who doesn't have a clue to the emotional terrain of that friend. See, here's the thing. If you can be happy when I'm devastated, you're not my friend. And I'm not your friend. If you could make jokes that cut deeply because you have no idea of the inner emotional condition state, you're not my friend. I'm not your friend. As I thought about this, do you know what this reminded me of? Wait till you become a parent. It's the most beautiful, miserable thing in the whole world. Do you know why? When you become a parent, there's this emotional bonding. There's this emotional connection that happens to your child that makes you absolutely, absolutely elated at times and miserable at times. Do you know why? Someone, someone once said this. I mean, I mean, read this quote. He said, once you start to have children, you realize that for the rest of your life, you could only be happy as your unhappiest child. As a parent, you could only be happy, he says, as your unhappy, child. Why? When you become a parent and your child is grieving and mourning, you grieve. You mourn. You can't help it. It just happens. And here's the beautiful thing. And the tough thing about friendship. In friendship, you give this gift of emotional vulnerability voluntarily. You give it voluntarily. Not like a parent where you just, well, it just happens. In a friendship, you go, I choose to identify with you to the extent that when you're grieving, I'm grieving. When you're mourning, I'm mourning. I choose to enter into this with you. Remember this passage we covered a little bit ago, Romans 12 15? Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Can you think about that? Think about the emotional identification with somebody where you go, I rejoice when they're rejoicing and I mourn. But by the way, I just thought, how cool that the order in which this is written by Paul is rejoice first, mourn second. What do I mean? I think it's much harder to rejoice with those who rejoice, and it is to mourn with those who mourn. Don't you know what what I'm talking about? I think the true test of friendship is one in which when they are rejoicing, when they are happy, when they succeed, when they do well, you're actually happier for them than they are for themselves. Because there is not even a hint of jealousy, a hint Hint of (laughs) jelly, a hint of peanut butter, a hint of. Can I ask you? Be honest here. Do you have the kinds of friends in which there is literally. Not even a hint of competi- competition, not even a hint of envy, not even a hint of jealousy. Even more, taking it a step further, the kind of friendship in which when they succeed, you go, I am happier for you than you actually are. When they do well, I could not be more through. You rejoice with those who rejoice. Do you have friends like that? And you mourn with those who mourn. There's an emotional identification. You grieve when they grieve. You rejoice when they rejoice. A friend is someone who is emotionally invested in you. You're to see why we can't have too many. Here's a third. Here's the third. A friend speaks truth and love to you. A friend is someone who speaks the truth. And can I just say this? I need, I need you guys to really pay attention to this one because this one really struck out to me as I thought about our church. Proverbs seven five, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiply kisses. The beautiful thing about the book of Proverbs is that the metaphors are so vivid and the parallelism. What do I mean? Look at this. Friendly wounds are wounding kisses. Friendly wounds are wounding kisses. What are friendly wounds? Friendly wounds. Are the words that your friend needs that are going to be painful them to hear, but they need to hear them. Friendly wounds are those words that you say to your friend because you love them. Words that they need to hear, but it's going to be painful for them to hear them at the time, but they have to hear them. And the author of Proverbs is saying, if you and I are afraid to say what really needs to be said to our friends. You're not giving them what they need. Friendly wounds. Friendly wounds is contrasted to wounding kisses. What are wounding kisses? Again, the parallelism. In verse 5, he says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. What is hidden love? Hidden love is a person who thinks you're being loving. By hiding the truth. Hidden love is someone says, I love you too much to confront you with the truth. I love you too much to tell you what you really need. I love you. And Proverbs is saying, when you do that, it's like wounding kisses, verse 6, of the enemy. It's Judas with a kiss. Here's what it's saying. It's saying if you're a friend to somebody... And you're literally saying to yourself, you know what? I love my friend too much to tell them the truth. Here's what you're really saying. You're saying, I love myself too much to have to tell them what they need. I love myself too much. I love myself too much. And I love myself too much to face the consequences, whether it be rejection or whatever. I love myself too much to actually have to tell them the truth. And so, I'm not going to. The other proverb that gets to this is Proverbs 29.5 where it says, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. If you have a friend, it could be a spouse, it could be, if you have a friend and you're basically saying, I am not going to tell them what they need because I'm afraid of whether it be the rejection, losing the friendship, when you say to them, I'm not going to tell them what they need, the author of the Proverbs is saying, it's like you're setting a trap, a bear trap for them. Why? Because they're going to make decisions based on who they think they are, what they think they are, rather than based on reality of what's really happening. And if you are a friend who's unable to tell somebody the truth, you are basically setting them up for a disastrous life because they're going to make one disastrous decision after another. Can I ask you something? How many of you guys know friends who've made terrible, poor decisions in their lives? Here's another question. Were you ever in a position to lovingly say to them, I know you may not want to hear this, but you are not responding to reality and truth. You think this is what you think. You think this is what... Let me in love tell you. Are we allowing those people that are in community with us because we love ourselves too much, because we're afraid of consequences, are we just basically going, I'm not going to say anything? And we're watching our friends make one disastrous decision after another. When we do that, the Bible is saying we are not being loving, we're being selfish. And I know we live in a culture, and many of us in a generation where we're going, nobody tells me what to do, and I'll tell you something. When somebody needs to hear the truth of love, and you withhold that, that is unloving. That is unloving. To watch someone make one disaster after another is unloving. Let me say something else. The more powerful you are, the wealthier you are, the more people around you will never do this to you. Look at our culture. Look at our culture. We have famous, wealthy, powerful, and you, you guys. Don't ever have to think about prison. Think about your own lives. Think about the people that are around you. The vast majority of the people around you, if they're there basically to use you and not to be in a covenant relationship with you, they will never speak truth and love to you and tell you and I what we need to hear. So as you become more famous, or popular, or wealthy, or move up the corporal ladder, or whatever, the more temptation there will be to surround yourself with people who basically will not do this to you. Why? Because they just want to use you. One other thing real quick before last point. Some of you are sitting there going, man, you're talking awful lot about truth, 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 Peter. What about those people who lack love, who lack love? Let me just speak to those of us, you who struggle with the love part. Here's how you know whether you are speaking the truth in love. When you get ready to confront a friend because of the terrible decisions they're making of their lives, if even for a second you think to yourself, I would never do that, then you need to keep your mouth quiet. Can I say that again? The moment truth-tellers... <laughs> You're sitting there going, Amen, brother. I love that third point. I can't wait to go and tell. If you are somebody who's going, I can't wait, I'm going to tell you right now. If even for a second in your mind you go, I have no problem telling the truth, I'm going to, and you look at who they are and their sins and their struggles, and even for a second the thought goes through your mind, I would never do that, or even something like that, that completely disqualifies you from speaking the truth because it will never come across as love. What gives you the right and the authority to speak truth, which you need to, is to be so humble by the gospel that when you look at someone who's broken and lost and hurting, you say to yourself, of course I would do what they do. Of course, I, maybe not the exact thing, but of course I would do something similar. Who am I? When that gospel saturates your heart, that's the only way that you will have the correct posture to be able to speak truth. Can I get an amen? Remember that. Remember that. Vast majority of us, you need to today walk away going, I have friends and none of us are speaking truth. None of us are speaking truth to each other. People say inappropriate things. People do inappropriate things. And because we love, because we want to be friends, we're not challenging and confronting and ironing, sharpening, iron with each other. We're j- you need to seriously think about the value of those friendships. And then for some of us, small minority of us, who are like, I can't wait to tell them, back up and ask yourself the question. Am I so humbled by the gospel that there's not even a hint of superiority? Am I so humbled by the gospel that as I look at who they are and what they're struggling with, that I would never ever think to myself, I'd never do that. Humbled heart by the gospel is the only thing that will enable you to speak truth. Lastly, how are we doing so far? How are we doing so far? Are you evaluating your friendships as you look at your friendships? (laughs) Because my heart's broken at the fact that I see so many, especially, especially in our culture, Christians. We go out. We drink, we eat, we hang out, we do all kinds. We're even in small groups for crying out loud. And we don't live into this third principle. We don't do it. We don't do it, you guys. We don't do this. Fourth point. (laughs) Why don't we do it? Here it is. You thought those three were hard. This is the hardest of them all. Because a friend is someone who lets you in friends are marked by transparency transparency users will not ever do that users put up a front users put up a veneer users have to control what you see because they're only in the relationship as long as it meets their needs but a friend is someone who transparently lets you in how in two quick ways one they let you into their decisions man i struggled i'm like should i should i should i share this with the church should i share this with the church i need some encouragement say go ahead peter <laughs> all right Friends let you into their decisions. What do I mean? There's an awful lot of users, there's an awful lot of users who look like friends because they're having fun with you me. They're socializing. We do stuff together. We do fun things together. But here's how you can tell whether that friend is a user ultimately and is a user relationship, not a covenantal relationship. When it comes to decisions, your attitude is nobody has a right to tell me what to do. When it comes to decision making, when a person says, I have the right and only I have the right, and they don't let you into their decisions, they don't let you be a part of the decision making process, that's a user. Why? The Bible says a true friendship is like iron sharpening iron. We argue together. We debate together. We fight together. We challenge each other. Why? Because we're most concerned about who they are and the fact that they're becoming more like Jesus. And that means that a friend lets you into their decision-making before you make them. How many of us are going, well, we're a Christian community, but you know what? I'm going to decide for myself. I'm not telling anybody who I date, who I marry, where I spend my time. Do you realize how antithetical that is to the biblical community? Do you let people into the... Of course we don't. Of course we don't. Who's that? Oh, I'm dating him. Oh, I'm dating her. How long? Eight months. Eight months. Are you this transparent? You let them? This sounds like some of your heads are going to explode. Like, ask what they think about who I date? Well, that's just crazy. It's biblical. Secondly, friends also let you in to see your weaknesses and your flaws. Can everybody please look up here? Please, don't look down because I need to see your eyes. The things that are most wrong with you, you don't know. The things that are most wrong with me, my flaws, I am the least aware of. I can't see it. I can't see it. I need people who love me to go, Peter, Peter, Peter Hong, or my parents, Sung Oga, that's my Korean name. Sung and they tell me my flaws and weaknesses, and I hate it, but I need it. You know why? I can't see. The only way for us to work on our flaws and our weaknesses is to have a group of people that you've deputized and you've given them permission to go, Will you tell me what my weaknesses are? Will you tell me what my flaws are? And I'm not going to snap on you. I'm not going to get defensive. I'm going to let you speak truth into my life. And the question that I've been asking for the last four weeks is do you have anybody in your life that you've deputized to say, tell me my weaknesses? Tell me my flaws? Do you have people? Do we, do I, have people in our lives that we've let in to our decisions before we make them, to our weaknesses and our flaws? (sighs) Now, Don, as I wrap this up, it... If I did my job today, you're either, two things happening. One is some of you have a deep longing. You're going, I want that. I, maybe I'm afraid that. How many of you guys want these kinds of friendships? Say yes, raise your hand, yes. Don't we, don't we, I mean, it's, maybe there's, because you're smart, Alex, there's maybe two people going, I don't want that, man. That doesn't make any sense. And I'll philosophically argue with you why. But I think the vast majority of you, you hear that and go, who wouldn't want these friends? They're life giving for crying out loud. There's a longing that comes and says, Ah, oh, but we also feel maybe a level of being crushed. Do you know why? I'll just say it right here. I'll just say it right. Here. I'll put it out right here. I mean, the reason why we don't have the friends that our hearts need. It's because we are not the friends that we need to be. We don't have these friends because we are not these friends. You sit there and go, what are you talking about? How transparent are you? How transparent are you with your friends? How transparent are you about letting people in? When is the last time you let somebody in to your decisions before you made them? How transparent are you and am I about our weaknesses and our flaws? How transparent are we? Okay, let's keep going. How good are you and me about speaking truth and love? How good are we about speaking truth in love? How good are we about emotional investment? How good are we? How easy it for us, how easy is it for us to emotionally invest in this degree, to mourn with those mourn, rejoice with those mourn? And how good are we? How good are we about covenanting to people in our lives and saying, I am here. I'm not going anywhere. I will see your weaknesses and flaws. I will love you. How good are we? You see, we don't have these friends because we are not the friends we need to be. Do you know how hard it was for me Prepare this week. And I had to come to grips with the fact, I had to look at myself in the mirror and go, you don't have any friends, Peter, because you're not this friend to others. And I have a litany of excuses. I will beat your excuses any day. I'm a pastor. Pastors can't be friends with their congregation. Pastor, blah, blah, blah. No, you need to be quiet. Quiet. Peter, that's an excuse. I'm busy. I've got family. I've got three children. Like you're the only one on the face of the planet that has a family. Boo-hoo. I could go, in other words, I had to come to with the grips, you guys, that I can make all kinds of excuses. But the reality is I don't have these friends because I am not that friend. So go go do it. Let's pray. No, I'm not going to do that. You know me by now. I'm not going to just do that. Where do, you possibly, where do we possibly get the power to do this? Answer? Say it. Answer? The gospel, Jesus. I've trained them well. Yes. Because we're not the kind of church, because the, the, the last thing you need right now is to go, pastor to go. So go do it, or else you're not a good Christian. To which you and I will go, I'm never going back to that church again. You know where our power comes from? The night before Jesus is to be crucified, he is with his friends, his closest friends. And what are they doing? They're sleeping on him. You ever do that to your friend? Of course you have. Metaphorically. You've been asleep on your friends because you haven't done any of these. Anyway, they're sleeping on him. And Jesus is trying to tell them, Matt, John 14-17, he's trying to tell them the essence of what he is about to do. The essence of what his calling in life is. And do you know what he says? Listen to the words. John 15-12, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for your what? 15, I no longer call you servants because the servant does not know his master's business. He's letting him in. Jesus, this is Jesus, he's letting him in. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. And when Jesus said that, he was literally explaining the entirety of human history and what he's about to do in terms of friendship. Friendship. This God, this God who is community, creates us in his image, which means he creates us for friendship. Friendship with him and friendship with each other. The metaphor of how God walked with Adam, walking with someone in Hebrew is a metaphor for friendship. God creates Adam and Eve to walk with him, to be in friendship with him, and for us to be in friendship with each other. But we turn from him. We turned and betrayed him. What happens to others when you and I betray them? What do they do? They betray us. We expect it. Do you realize what happened on the cross, James? Do you realize the essence of the gospel is Jesus Christ on the cross saying, don't you realize that I'm your ultimate friend who will stick closer than a brother and will not let you go to ruin? Do you realize that on the cross, Jesus is declaring for all the world to see? I am so committed to this relation. God the Father comes to Jesus before he's to be killed on the cross the night before. And he says to him, either choose hell or you're going to lose your friends. What did Jesus do? He says, Why? i go to hell. Choose hell, Jesus, or or you'll lose your friends. And Jesus, looking at his friends that are sleeping on him for crying out loud. And he says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Another way of saying, I will gladly go to hell for them. And let me ask you something. If Jesus on the cross did not abandon you when we were betraying him, you think he's going to abandon you now because you had a bad week? You think he's going to forsake us now because we had a bad month? Come on, church. He declaring on the cross for the world to hear, I am losing my friendship with my heavenly father so that I could gain my friendship with you. Is that good news? Is that good news? And you go, well, why do I need to know that? Because that is the only power that's going to enable you to be the friend that you need to be. How are you going to be transparent? How are you and I possibly going to be transparent when we're people pleasers and we're deathly afraid of rejection? I'll tell you how. It's when the gospel finally hits you and says, I will never ever be afraid of any more human rejection because my heavenly father will never reject me. Unless you know deep in your heart That your heavenly father will never reject you. Human approval. Human affirmation. You're going to put all your eggs in that basket. And you will never have the power to be transparent. How will you commit to somebody who is always going to be a deficit in the relationship? If it's a user relationship, it's like, this is no longer working out for me. I'm out of here. This is too hard. How will you possibly, possibly stay in relationships when it's emotionally draining for you? It's for you to realize, I have the love of my heavenly Father who will never abandon me. Is that good news? Do you realize that you're chosen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Colossians 3, I am chosen, I am beloved, and I am holy. God says, you didn't do anything for it, but I chose you. <laughs> Is that good news? That's the only way we will ever have the power to be the friends we need to be. I'm speaking to you right now because there are those of you, you don't have these friends. You know it. You know you don't. I don't. You can either walk out here today going, that was interesting, but uh, I'm going to go eat my lunch now and go about my day. Or you can go, I can't do life without those kinds of friends. And I'm going to do something. Do so the gospel Jesus is our mentioned it I briefly mentioned it but for real for real a practical step for some of us literally is evaluating our friendships you guys and these are some people that we've done life with for years even And this is going to be one of the hardest things that you may ever have to do, that I may ever have to do. But it's being rigorously honest, not only asking ourselves, do I have these friends, but rigorously honest about, I have a lot of acquaintances, I have a lot of companions, I have a lot of social, have fun, hang out friends. I don't have anybody out of that circle that's this for me. And a really practical and yet incredibly difficult challenge for some of us might be to finally say today, I'm going to take the first step to saying to him, to her, to them, I will be this friend. Will you covenant with me? I will be this friend. Will you covenant with me to be there for each other? be emotionally invested to speak the truth in love and to let each other in. So the next minute or so, before I pray for our tithes and our offering and I have us all stand and close with the final song, will you just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Will you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you about where you are and what you need to do?